Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network, each week we take a closer look at the financial issues that are making the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. The latest intergovernmental panel on climate change report is another reminder that we must decarbonise the economy as soon as possible. To reach net zero, countries are putting a price on carbon emissions through cap and trade systems or straight taxation. International action is gaining traction with the EU and the US floating additional tariffs on trade partners who lack an emissions trading system. Australia is notoriously late to the game on carbon pricing, let alone on emissions targets. So how will we keep up as the green economy gathers steam? Let's meet our panel. So Nikki Hutley, I'm an economist with uh, three decades of experience uh, in both uh, macroeconomics and uh, microeconomics and and policy. Um, I've been a climate counsellor for the last year and been working in climate economics for well over a decade now. Bob Carr, longest serving Premier of New South Wales, whose government introduced the New South Wales Greenhouse Gas Scheme. Also former Foreign Minister of Australia, currently Professor of Business and Climate at UTS. The most recent... PCC report really highlights the urgency of international action on climate change. And last month, the EU put forward 13 policy measures in order to meet its emission reduction targets of uh, 55% in 2030, compared with 1990 levels. The most contentious of these proposals is the Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, or CBAM. Nikki, what is CBAM and how will it work? It's like putting a tariff on exports from Australia, which is a price for our exported goods that reflects the carbon concentrations in our goods that we don't price in the same way that the Europeans do. So in Europe, we have an emissions trading scheme, and it means that if you're producing carbon-intensive goods, let's just say steel, aluminium, you're paying more for those goods because you have to pay that carbon price to produce your goods. Along comes Australia and says, we'll sell you cheaper steel because we're not bothering to price our carbon. We don't care about that. And that's pretty unfair. In fact, the Australian government has often said it won't act on carbon because it doesn't want to be the only one putting a price on it. The European Union said, not good enough. Everybody's got to do the same thing. And if you're not prepared to make sure that you're acting on climate change, then we're going to put a price on it for you and make sure that you do do something so you're sending the right signals to the market. How it will work in practice is as yet not entirely clear. Goods that are emissions intensive, so that's around 43 different types of manufactured and processed goods in Australia that are energy intensive, they'll be the ones that will cop this price. In terms of the proposal, it's meant to only apply to imports of electricity, cement, aluminium, fertiliser and iron and steel products. Now, it seems like there's going to be a high administrative burden there. They want to figure out how much carbon has been admitted in the process of the production to a given import and then 
to what extent a foreign government has actually already taxed that emission. Is it even possible to do some of these things that are being proposed? It's absolutely possible. And the EU, you know, has said this isn't going to happen overnight. Yes, it is complicated. And part of the reason that they've chosen a core set of goods, the ones that are really the most emissions intensive, is so that they can do a pilot trial. And it may well be extended to other goods beyond those, but they're going to try and capture the ones where the carbon pricing impact is going to be the greatest. They do understand that it's complex. But it's certainly not impossible. I mean, we have companies already that are helping to track for other companies their scope one, scope two and scope three emissions. So they're tracking their pathways. There are many companies that want to understand that are committed to net zero. They want to know what their carbon footprint is. They're already working on it. Yes, it's not particularly straightforward, but it certainly can be done. It's a fairly big idea given that only one border adjustment mechanism is currently in operation, and that's in California with their electricity grid. But the EU is not alone in this. The Democrats in the US have also announced their intention to legislate a polluter import fee based on exporters' greenhouse emissions as part of the Biden administration's goals to cut emissions by 50% by 2030. Bob, can you speak to the US's policy push to curb emissions? Yeah, I think it's going to be very easy for the US to introduce a carbon border adjustment mechanism. First of all, the idea is out there. Senior Republicans have endorsed it. Second, there is a strong protectionism in America, one that's accelerated by the the consideration of China's rise. Both sides of the aisle would be drawn to the notion of hitting China with a tariff based on a calculation for carbon intensity. It's got appeal finally as a revenue measure. I think in response to any initiative by Europe, any anything coming out of the European Union, this is going to have an appeal to Washington and is likely to take off faster than most things can take off. Now, this is something on, on, on which both sides of the aisle would happily close ranks. The EU and the US combined make up something like 40% of global gross GDP and 30% of goods imports. Do you think that these two bodies can form a climate club and basically exert pressure internationally? I, I think undoubtedly, and I think it would have appeal in the political systems, a response to moves by the US and the EU on carbon border adjustment mechanisms, responses by China and India could prove to be surprisingly uh, elastic. We all know that China has played with a provincial level experiment with emissions trading and has expanded that. Given the sophistication of China's economic management, it wouldn't be hard to see China responding. I think India is a very interesting case. The growth of renewables in India is very marked. Modi has defined renewables in terms of energy independence. If they boost renewables, they boost self-reliance. There's an argument put out by the Dutch bank, Rabobank. So in their analysis of CBAM, they suggest that this policy could be used as a as a bit of a, a lever to bring about a global minimum carbon price. Do you think that this is on the agenda for COP26 this coming November in response to potential CBAM proliferation? So we've already seen the G7 talking about this as a collective group, and we know that particularly Japan is actively looking at it, which would be far more significant for Australia than 
the EU or, or the US in terms of our sort of export base. I think the momentum that is building towards, you know, a global climate approach under the leadership of President Biden is something that we haven't seen in our in our lifetimes. The urgency compounded by the latest IPCC assessment report really sets that sense of urgency, but it will be hard to see how they would get as far as coming out with a communique. One of the problems, of course, is that every country has a different carbon price. And so perhaps you could set a minimum level, but the unit price in, say, some of the US states is still very low. I suspect it would be difficult for the EU to agree to something where a global CBAM was built on a price as low as the, the rates that we're seeing in other schemes around the world. But that doesn't mean that there isn't willingness to discuss this more. It would be brilliant to see a global price. Of course, that again makes difficulties for low-income developing countries as well. So we need to take them into consideration. But look, I think we've got the starting, the building blocks here for something greater and for something that really will drive change in recalcitrant countries. I think, I think what we've got to be aware of, as we get hit year on year by more dramatic climate events, there could be a disorderly or panicky response by the world community, or more polite language, the world could move with expedition on climate. If these events gather force, then it's very easy to see something like this being snapped into place very quickly. Therefore, it's a reasonable cautionary measure for Australia to start getting its act together. Let's let's talk then about the, the Australian reticence, because it does colour everything that we're saying about the international system. Can you refresh our collective memory about previous attempts at carbon pricing in Australia? Yeah, you've got to say this is the greatest policy failure in Australia. I believed back in 2006, 2007, that we were headed in that direction, but had a sense of inevitability. Even John Howard was saying there would be an emissions trading scheme introduced by him if, if he were re-elected in 2007. Kevin Rudd was explicitly committed to a carbon trading scheme. When it was debated in the Senate in 2009, late 2009, it ran into opposition. The opposition came from left and right. The Green Party looked at what Rudd was proposing and said it wasn't strong enough. The coalition had had its interest in this subject eroded by climate change denialists and people like uh, Bernardi and Corman and Minchin converted the coalition to climate resistance or climate scepticism. The legislation that would have set up an emissions trading scheme supported by Rudd and supported by Turnbull as opposition leader, then perished when Abbott emerged as opposition leader. And with the Greens, the coalition voted to set aside Rudd's legislation. And we've been struggling to catch up all the time since. It's just been a farcical episode that demonstrated Australia's inability to come to terms with a big idea. That is, as a carbon producer and exporter, we should be smart enough to anticipate that the world is moving to price carbon and to slowly slip into place a policy mechanism to see that we weren't left behind. If we'd introduced something back in 2007, 2008, the slow incremental move to putting a price on carbon would have sent a message to investors, they should start to calculate for carbon being appropriately priced, and they should adjust their portfolios accordingly. 
and the transition would not have been a burdensome one for the consumer. On its face, the EU's uh, CBAM measure would have a negligible impact on Australian exports. Why should Australians care about this proposal? Europe is not the be-all and end-all. It's a question of who then joins in. Unfortunately, we don't have the modelling yet, but we're looking at what this actually might look like if you had all of the G7 and South Korea. What if China does move much more quickly? Now, if, if China, certainly if Japan and Korea... Uh, but also if China were to go in, that changes everything. It changes the dynamic. Even if we add the UK and the US to the to the EU, that again ups the ante. We may not be afraid of the EU doing this. We should be very scared of what it means for Australia being left behind because if we're not at the forefront of investing in a transition we will miss out on these opportunities for new green industries. It's what if it goes wider? There's A, strong consequences for loss of markets because we find fewer and fewer places are willing to take our goods. With this, we can't just switch out. And if you know, we potentially are also missing out on the upside of, of investing in these clean industries. At the same time, you know, the trade minister has come out and critiqued this proposal. Dan Tian has said that it's a form of protectionism. Do you think that's accurate? I think it's bad for Australia to have a trade minister doing that. This is a very considered and timely move by Europe. It's being done for the best of motivations. It shows the European community taking seriously all the imperative of the Paris Agreement. I, I, I think it's extraordinarily undiplomatic language to have an Australian trade minister criticise the Europeans for a very considered bit of, of, of policy in response to a global imperative. There's also an element of hypocrisy in this because the coalition for the longest time has been very clear in saying they want a level playing field. Well, this is saying we're going to have a level playing field on climate action. It's actually quite hard to argue against that. The long-standing arguments we've heard from uh, internal critics of a domestic carbon price have been, well, you know, undertaking climate action will harm our carbon-intensive industries, coal, metals, agriculture... How does the prospect of this international wave, how does that impact on the argument uh, put forward that it would harm our carbon-intensive industries? Well, it will harm them to the extent that we lose markets and we lose um, export capacity. So we're, we're going to be um, you know, adversely affected. There will be lost economic activity. There will be lost employment as a result of, of having, a, having a price. The corollary is that if we do something, if we invest and keep making the shift towards renewable, that basically all the states and territories are already doing anyway. The ACT has gone, you know, for its electricity is 100% renewables. Tasmania is already 100% renewables. You know, we have the opportunity to invest, to make a positive economic contribution. All we need to do is see the costs that are mounting up. You know, it's estimated now that the health costs in the US, a study that's just out, amount to around a trillion Australian dollars every year, climate-related health costs, right? And, you know, in Australia, we haven't got as far as putting all of those health costs together, but we are seeing millions in terms of increased hospital admissions, increased loss of life. It's astronomical, all of these costs, if we don't act. And we must always keep both sides of that equation in mind. Yes, there is some upfront investment to be made, but the benefits just so outweigh any upfront costs. 
it's, you know, there's just not even an argument, which is why the majority of economists and certainly all climate scientists get quite frustrated at the, you know, the inaction that we're seeing. There is a colossal cost associated with this phase we're entering of extreme weather events. And think of, of what we've seen in the last week about these horrendous fires in the Mediterranean basin. It's about time Australia relegated the resistance, this futile resistance to international action and attempted to be part of a conversation with the rest of the world that acknowledged this vast challenge and entered practical ideas for pricing carbon, fueling the transition and seeing that we grab for our economy and for our people the share of the new economy, the renewables that are the way forward. Yeah, I can remember doing a lot of work uh, modelling around, you know, what would it cost us to have a, a trading scheme? Whereas now, of course, all the language is, is around what it is costing us not to invest in climate change and the astronomic costs in, in terms of, to use our current Prime Minister's words, lives and livelihoods. And I think, you know, we can learn so much and use uh, what we're going through at the moment with the COVID pandemic to understand this incredible disruption that is coming our way. A range of economic forecasting um, has, you know, suggested we are headed for within a couple of decades, you know, COVID-sized shocks on average every year. If the threat of that doesn't get people going, then they should also be looking at exactly that, what is the opportunity now? Yes, there's an upfront cost to investing. We have to invest more in it, particularly in our um, infrastructure, um, whether it's transmission and, and distribution or whether it's things like uh, um, electric vehicle charging. But the dividends from that is just also extraordinarily large. And I think we need to keep going on and, and just, you know, it feels like banging your head against the wall at times, but to keep reframing the debate about the economic opportunity of action. We have talked a lot about carbon pricing as this way forward. I think according to an article in The Economist last week, just over 20% of the world's emissions are now taxed or under a cap and trade system. At the same time, global CO2 emissions are still rising after a tail off in the early months of 2020 emissions haven't been fully curbed despite this carbon pricing system slowly being integrated into more markets. Nikki, does this mean that carbon pricing by itself isn't enough to get us there? I think you've got to have a look at where the emissions are coming from versus where the, the pricing is. And if we look at, you know, for example, the UK, which of course for a long time was part of the, um, the EU trading system, you know, they've had growth over the last 40 or so years of 75% and yet emissions fell by 43%. And if we look at the rest of the G7, the same, you know, growth up 69% over that period and emissions down only 2%, but nevertheless still going backwards at a time when, when growth was, was rising on a, on a consistent, consistent basis. So sending the signals to the market, and obviously we've, we've now got, I think it's one in five of the top 2,000 um, from Forbes uh, publicly listed companies that also are, are moving on, on net zero, even without a carbon price. So we are seeing action and we are seeing positive movement. Where the biggest challenges are, are in countries like China, like India, where you have very, very large and rapidly growing populations and low incomes. And the move has come more slowly. But Bob has already covered why we should be more optimistic about 
particularly India and, and also possibly China. The next move, of course, is to look at what happens in other developing nations around the world, particularly Southern and Central America, although a number of those countries do have carbon pricing schemes. And of course, the African continent will be the next one to go because it has a very young and rapidly growing population and will start to be the next real sort of engine of growth. In every economist who has worked in this space said, shows can show you that a carbon pricing mechanism particularly an emissions trading scheme rather than a fixed price, is going to be the most economically efficient way of delivering change. That does go against the line from the government, which is that emissions reduction should come through technology, not taxation, that penalisation isn't the optimum policy, that instead we should be focused on incentivising technologies such as carbon and capture and storage. Do you think that incentivization? plays a part in in this mix? One, I've done a lot of work around carbon capture and storage over the years. And quite frankly, that is just never going to be feasible financially, technically in time for what we need. That people can keep looking at it, we can keep working on it, but we cannot rely on it to suddenly come in at the 11th hour. We cannot wait till, you know, 2048 or 2055 for that matter for to, in the hope that something that has tried for decades to, to come to the fore. This idea that we, we don't provide, you know, sticks and carrots incentives or, or, or penalties, it's ludicrous. We use financial incentives, whether they're you know, positive or negative in the form of fines or hangout, grants or whatever, to do all sorts of things. There is just absolutely no way that that, that doesn't work. The whole of economic theory is based on how those sorts of things send signals to the market where there is a market failure. And let nobody amongst your listeners be in any doubt. Climate change comes from a massive market failure because we have failed to price what we economists call externalities, which is the impact of carbon greenhouse gas emissions going into the atmosphere and nobody who produces them has paid for them, at least not with monetary terms. They have paid for them with their lives, as we have seen in our own bushfires, in the current fires, in floods, in all the other events that are happening, rising temperatures. That's the thing. We have failed to do that. So addressing that market failure is exactly what economic theory and policy is all about. And to suggest anything else is, quite frankly, just mendacious and ludicrous. And, and I, I just want to put something in on carbon capture and storage because it figures in everything Canberra says about technological initiatives and about funding. It is there on every list. When it comes to coal-fired power, there is not one commercial carbon capture and storage unit anywhere on the planet. They just don't exist. It's a concession to the coal sector um, that is really, really theological. Mm. It's got no basis in day-to-day in -day reality. There would be a process, there, there, there would be some submission from the private sector for a subsidy to make this work if it were if it made the remotest sense in one of our coal regions adjacent and easily accessed by one of our, our privately owned coal-fired power plants. But it's just not feasible. I did want to end on. I mean, a fairly obvious question, but one I do have to ask. In, in light of the recent ICC report and in light of the Australian climate towards uh, carbon pricing, how urgent is Australian action on emissions? 
Well, I'll, I'll just quote my colleagues from the Climate Council, and it's aim high, go fast. We actually feel that net zero by 2050 is, in fact, too late, and a lot of the science is suggesting that. IPCC is, is say, you know, telling us, underlining how urgent the task is. We absolutely have to do everything humanly possible, or it's not future generations anymore. It's current generations that will bear the unbearable costs. Um, we are seeing it all around it, and maybe this will be the wake-up call that our government needs. Maybe it's the wake-up call that voters need um, to make sure that they put politicians under pressure to do what is needed. Um, but we have to all make our voices heard. The last decade was the critical decade, and we did nothing. This now is it. There is no plan B. There is no escape clause if we do not act in the coming decade to actually do something, not even just talk about it, we will face absolutely dire consequences. And I hate to end on a negative note, so I will say that we can still do things. We have the potential. We are doing wonderful things around the country. We just need to do it faster and we need the support of the federal government behind us to make sure it happens at the speed that it needs to. Bob, your thoughts, how urgent is action? Well, very quickly, I think the thing that gives us hope, and we should focus on the positive as we wrap up this discussion, the thing that gives us hope is the speed with which the private sector is moving. Yes, I know there's a lot of greenwashing, but nonetheless, boardrooms and shareholders meetings and gatherings of, of uh, investors are making a decision to get out of coal and moving to get out of infrastructure related to coal and adding gas to that list. Um, they're doing it because they can see what's happening to the planet. They're under pressure from their own youngsters. Um, they know that the market's putting a price on the emission of carbon and other greenhouse gases. And they're beginning to see serious action by governments Biden's election first and foremost, and then the movement by Japan, China, and South Korea uh, late last year. So we've got to work. There's a lot to be discouraged by, and we've canvassed. We've canvassed that. We live in a country that's a laggard that has made a decision at the national level to defer the necessary action, but the private sector is moving. And when you get Paul Kelly in the Australian, a newspaper that's led the action, led, led, led a campaign against climate action, saying that the world is going to discriminate against Australia in terms of capital allocation because of our resistance on climate. Something has happened. The movement in business is probably the most positive thing as we survey the horizon. That's all for today's panel. Thank you to my guests, Bob Carr and Nikki Hutley. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Stay safe and I'll catch you back here next week.